like the it, it seems to me that his work does partake more of of poetry or of painting than of of prose like look, looking at uh, Lisa and the devil is like looking at a you know sometimes a, a pre-raphaelite painting or something and it's got the same kind of narrative function <laughs> Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm David. And I'm Sean. And on today's show, we'll discuss Mario Bava's 1974 film, or rather, 1972 film that didn't really show up until 1974, Lisa and the Devil, starring Elkie Summer, Telly Savalas, and Sylvia Krishina. This is your film, we should note, because you told me to watch this, David, and so I did. what is about to happen, I just want you to know, you brought it upon yourself. <laughs> Because <laughs> I watched both versions of this film. <laughs> oh, you poor man. Oh, no. I suspect we're about to have a disagreement <laughs> about which film is better. <laughs> you like the House of Exorcism better? Oh, you are now uh, being booted into the sun by every cinephile on the planet. Well, too bad, because I submit only one of these two films makes any sense. <laughs> Okay, yeah, we're going to have an interesting discussion. We are. Uh, but it's been a while, David. I haven't seen you around for movie-related conversations because we've both been busy doing things. You writing mm -hmm. 6,000 new books, including, as I recall, you might have written a, a Doctor Doom book? I did, yes. The Harrowing of Doom, my first uh, uh, Marvel novel uh, for uh, Aconite Books. So, uh, and yeah, Dr. Doom's been my, my favorite Marvel character for my entire life, pretty much. So that was pretty special. I think we've learned a lot about you, David, by you telling us <laughs> which of your Marvel characters is your favorite. Uh, mine is not that character, but that's okay. <laughs> which, which one is yours? Uh, I'm a Darkhawk fan, which basically nobody knows who that is except Super Marvel dorks, uh, because he hasn't really been in comics since the 90s, so... Yeah, uh, yeah, he was one that I uh, certainly I missed, uh, at least, or at least I don't recall from uh, the, the peak of my comics reading in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Well, that makes me so sad, <laughs> but we'll just have to deal. <laughs> uh, so David selected this film, and so I think it would be a good time for David to give us a little bit of context and to give us a summary. But before we do that, this is a reminder for folks that if you want to share your comments about this episode or this film or other things that we've discussed on the show or you want to suggest other topics, please go to skiffingfanti.com slash listener suggestions. We're working on putting together a mailbag segment, so we need your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, etc. So make sure to go there and do that. So on that note, David, I'm going to throw this to you to tell us what this movie is about, give us a little bit of context, explain to us why the heck you picked it. Well, this is, I think, one of Mario Bava's most beautiful films. Uh, so Mario Bava, uh, the, the director who was perhaps the most responsible for for the Italian horror movie, his full first official directorial uh, effort was uh, Black Sunday, also known as the Mask of the uh, the Mask of Satan with uh, Barbara Steele. That was a, a shot in a truly beautiful black and white, with uh, some imagery that. Some of the look of it that might evoke memories of, uh, well, the contemporary uh, Seventh Seal. 
he uh, then, then he when he moved into color, there was a a sumptuousness to you know this this beautiful use of reds and blues of lighting, conjuring the most extraordinary images sometimes out of very limited budgets, uh, as in his Planet of the Vampires, which is a film that from nineteen sixty five that is a direct ancestor to Alien. Lisa and the Devil is so one of his later films, you know, shown um, in Cannes in nineteen seventy two, and then almost immediately. Lisa, the version that was Lisa and the Devil would vanish and not be seen really by anyone until it was restored in the 90s, I believe, is when we could finally start. It became possible to see that film because the producer took it away, basically removed about 20 minutes of Bava's film, inserted uh, a bunch of uh, footage of Robert Alda as a priest exercising Elke Summer, who's vomiting toads, and... It went out in, in, on release as The House of Exorcism, directed by Mickey Lyon, which was a pseudonym for, for Mario Bava. All of the scenes of, of Alda and the, the exorcism, none of that was done by, by Mario Bava. And so it became a, a film that um, was just regarded as a, a sad uh, butchery of what he had done, but very few people could, you know, there was a, a hint or there, there was some sense of what the original was like in the the House of Exorcism. It wasn't an uninteresting movie, but his vision was utterly distorted. And then finally, the the restoration happened in the '90s, and we could see the movie as it actually was. I, one of the reasons I chose this film was, I think, precisely anticipating the reaction you just uh, gave me a teaser for. The story, in brief, has. Elke Summer as a tourist uh, who uh, goes down the wrong uh, path in a, a, small ta a small village in Italy, gets hopelessly lost in the maze of streets after a disturbing encounter with Telly Savalas buying a mannequin uh, in a store. Said mannequin then shows up and uh, the man comes up to uh, Summer and claims that uh, he, he, they're in love and that he knows her. And uh, then she accidentally kills him, pushing him down the stairs. But then we see Savalas again uh, holding the the mannequin. This is the beginning of this back and forth between with people who are alive and then dead, and then they weren't alive in the first place because they were dummies. From the, the town, she then in the middle, uh, in the night is picked up by some people in a strangely anachronistic vehicle and taken to this uh, villa where all sorts of bizarre things start to, to happen. Essentially, uh, what I would say, we are in a kind of deliriously romantic version of Sartre's No Exit. Now, I've, I've made this probably sound a little more abstract than, than people would like, but that's because of the nature of the film. Trying to summarize Lisa and the Devil in a strictly linear way, this happens and this happens and this happens, will sound like trying to explain a dream you've had. It's not quite as oneric as Succubus, which uh, the, the Jess Franco film that I subjected you to, but <laughs> I was kind of anticipating that the reaction would be not that different. So I, I find it amusing that you refer to this, uh, your description as abstract, because 
I gotta be honest, David, your description makes a lot more sense than a first viewing of this film would entail. <laughs> because this film is, I, I think you, you use the phrase like, you know, it's like a dream, and that's kind of what it is. I think somebody on Twitter was mentioning this to me as well, that it's like a sequence of, of uh, dream sequences, that it follows a dream mm-hmm. logic in the way that it's constructed, uh, or at least that's how, how I envision it. Uh, and I think this is what the House of Exorcisms version tries to capture capitalize on by making it into like a sequence of memories that are fragmented this film just lacks that frame narrative to explain why we're getting things that seem like they don't connect with one another or aren't explained or seem to come out of left field and so it's an unusual film david that you have selected you absolute monster (laughs) i really struggled with it i i will say precisely because I was trying to put things together to figure out what was really going on because it seems at moments that this film jumps, right? At one moment we're in one place and then suddenly we're in another. Uh, there were sequences in this like where there's romances being hinted at that mm-hmm. just seemed like they come from nowhere. They, they're unexplained. And some of them I think is is it makes sense because the, the character of Lisa seems very confused by them. So the figure of Carlos, who sometimes is a dummy and sometimes is a person and sometimes might be both, is a, is an example of this who like confesses love to her and all of these things. And she seems deeply confused by this, understandably, being accosted by a man in the midi- middle of a, a fairly medieval-looking Italian villa. But in other cases, like in the, the figure of uh, Maximilian, played by Alessio Arano, they seem to have a love together, and yet it's it's very difficult to figure out why, given that they've literally just met like 37 seconds ago, and yet are engaged in what seem to be romantic behaviors. Now, for Maximilian, it makes sense, because his character has an infatuation with a figure named Elena, who is dead-ish, and he may or may not be sleeping with her corpse. It's, it's not entirely clear. So he has that relationship, but Lisa doesn't she she doesn't technically know him or at least that's what i took from this and so that those things seem to come out of left field for me i get how they there is a dream sequence quality to this or dream logic quality but it is difficult to follow especially if what you're hoping for is for the story to like give you a moment of like hey here's an explanation of what's going on the film doesn't do that it, it almost never explains what's happening i think this is where you and i sometimes differ about what we like in films <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. may explain why you love Hereditary in a way that I will never understand, because to me, that film in particular, it doesn't make sense so that when I got to the end and a thing happened, that didn't have the impact that I think it was meant to, to do. And that somewhat is true here, although I think this film is better than Hereditary in that at least the the end of this movie, the, the correct version, Lisa and the Devil, uh, there is a somewhat shocking conclusion in the death of Maximilian, uh, who is basically knocked over by either dummy or actual dead version of his mother, which is a pretty interesting ending. And then, of course, there is a sequence where Lisa basically climbs into a a taxi, escapes, she's confused for a ghost, and then she basically leaves Italy as quickly as possible. So that, I think, is a much more interesting ending than I think what Hereditary does. So I will shut up because I'm sure you have thoughts about everything I've just said. (laughs) You want to tell me why I'm wrong and why it's just because you're an American and you don't understand subtlety. So go for it. Well, uh, I mean, certainly, obviously, we disagree on hereditary. And I, 
I I certainly have never never found that it, it didn't make sense. In fact, I, yeah, I found it, it it's got this kind of quite intricately uh, malevolent uh, logic to it, and and a very very different kind of film than than this. With the, and let's re- recall too that the uh, and obviously we're into total spoiler territory here that that Lisa doesn't escape, and and I think one of the key things here is she's not mistaken for a ghost. She is a ghost, right? Uh, and uh, we then see her you know going onto thinking she's getting away boarding onto a plane but oh look there's telly savalas uh, the devil right uh, waiting for her then and you know she just falls down as a corpse i love that sequence by the way i think that whole sequence is really cool oh and boy you know the the eeriness of an empty plane of course yeah. I, you know watching it this time i thought oh okay she's flying during a pandemic <laughs> i think once you've seen it in, in its entirety the film does make sense if you are seeing this as the you know essentially as no exit right these are these characters are all damn souls reenacting uh in in one way or another the, the situations that brought them to damnation or or and bringing in new variations of it so the the corpse that lisa is um is is lying beside in the bed is also her but Phil, the, phil hardy's encyclopedia of the horror film calls baba the master of funereal lyricism uh, and talks about the film's morbid romanticism, which I, I think both of these things are absolutely true. And yes, the, you can approach it as a dreamlike logic, but in, as, as a film, as a dream. One of the big differences between the uh, predominantly American approach to the horror film and the, I would say, well, certainly the continental European approach to to a lot of the horror film less so for britain which is going to be which is closer i think to the the american though though distinct in itself as well but then we also see uh, and, and but i think uh, we would see in common with uh, the japanese horror film uh, as well would be almost the difference between uh, saying that one is prose and the other is poetry so if we look at the way that the the horror film developed in the states and and let's re- recall that the horror film began on the the european continent began in france uh, and reached its first feature flowering in Germany. And really, the, though, though the term horror movie originates in the States, but the, in many ways, we have to wait until the 30s for the, the, the American horror film proper to take its form. Uh, we have some, some earlier instances, certainly, but like The Supernatural, for instance, is virtually non-existent in the american horror film at least after the the early the very early years of the uh of, of the 20th century but when when we're in the ni- 1920s for example all the supernatural is, is always being explained away and so if we look at the horror films as they developed under the studio system and the classical form of stel- storytelling developed by that system you are going to see a much more linear rational in quotation marks you know comparatively approach to storytelling and i think to a certain degree we see that that split between uh american and european approaches to horror would continue on for decades i'm i'm over general i'm generalizing somewhat but i think that we we do see this this particular trend and if you look at uh let's say two vampire films coming out at almost almost the, the same time todd browning's dracula with bella lugosi and carl dreyer's vampire and the difference between those two films is stark. And though the American films would be strongly influenced by German Expressionism, in no small part because a lot of the artists of uh, the, the German Expressionist films had moved to Hollywood, so Carl Freund, for example, uh, doing the, the cinematography on Dracula, 
Dracula plays out in a way that is linear, in a way that Vampire is utterly dreamlike. Like trying to figure out exactly what's going on and why in Vampire. Basically, everything you just said about Lisa and the Devil, you'd also be saying about that film. And so much of the European tradition of the horror of the horror film flows like this. Lisa and the Devil is perhaps one of the more pronounced in its poetic and dreamlike approach, but it's hardly unusual. Like Succubus, perhaps is even more pronounced uh, in, in that way, more even more extreme. But this is something that uh, my my friend and uh, fellow writer Steve Sullivan and I have been talking about. We've been doing watch-alongs for the last uh, few months of, uh, of Paul Nashi films, and, and now we've started doing some Mario Bava. And he has commented a number of times on the way time seems to be slippery in, uh, in European horror films, how we, suddenly it's another full moon, uh, or the you know, how did we get from A to B is, isn't, isn't very clear, that the connective tissue that you are used to in the American form of, of storytelling is not there. But in the same way that you wouldn't expect that uh, in in a poem, you're not going to expect the same kind of connective tissue to get from one stanza to the next as you would in in a in a prose short story. And I think that's one of the uh, the, the differences here. And when you look at uh, like Bava's work, so so visually rich, like the it, it seems to me that his work does partake more of of poetry or of painting than of of prose like look, looking at uh, Lisa and the Devil is like looking at a you know sometimes a, a pre-Raphaelite painting or something and it's got the same kind of narrative function uh, as as one of those well I think it's interesting that because one of the things that you shared on Twitter which I, th- I thought was it this was before I had seen the film and you, you sh- shared this shot uh, with everybody from this film which is one of the exterior mm-hmm. shots i believe it's the shot towards the end when she's leaving yes. the mansion which the mansion's been uh overtaken by nature and so there's trees and vines and stuff growing through it and she's leaving or the, the ghost version of lisa's leaving believing she's going to get on an airplane and go home and i think you're you're right in a sense that this film is it is like a like a sequence of paintings that are being brought to life mm-hmm. it, rather than having you know a, a very what would be in an american sense or something like in house of exorcism as an example which is there's a very clear through line right a leads to b leads to c leads to d right so the whole point of right. of the very beginning right we have this tour sequence and then she gets sick and there's all these added sequences in which there's a priest that's brought in and then th- there's the interconnection between her in what is clearly some sort of like hallucinogenic memory fueled state where she's remembering things that have happened as a consequence of being possessed by a devil creature. And so we get those interspersed her have being possessed and having these memories and going through this. And then we get to the conclusion uh, in which it's not in fact her leaving on the airplane that is all taken out. It's instead the priest conducting an exorcism in the house uh, and successfully, or at least we're led to believe successfully doesn't he get blasted by lightning? He gets like blasted by lightning. It's kind of hard to know exactly. So either he is successful and also dies or not. He does get thrown around a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think that they're allowed a little bit of ambiguity, but he might be just vapored. Yeah. But I think there's a clear, stark difference between the type of story that goes along with what you're saying here, that House of Exorcism wants there to be an A, B to C. And... Right. The version, Lisa of the Devil, does not. I mean, there are moments that you could maybe argue are 
you know, an A and a B and a C, but there, there's nothing that's necessarily tying all of those pieces together as some sort of formal linear narrative. And so no. in that respect, it is visually, I think, much more important of a, of a film than it is necessarily as a narrative uh, that what we're, we're being shown uh, and in some cases, the dialogue that's being given to us uh, and the performances, those become much more significant components of how we understand what Lisa and the devil is actually about, and more importantly, the characters and their traumas that they're going through. Uh, naturally, we have to question whether or not the, the devil is, in fact, as I like to refer to him, Blofeld, uh, because that's who he <laughs> did, in fact, play at one point. You know, he is implied to be the devil or some sort of malevolent spirit, possibly Satan. But yeah, so well, he even calls himself the devil at one point. He does, and, uh, yeah. and and we do the opening credits say Lisa and the devil, and we see, and there, there he is, right. Yeah, it's strongly um, he's, and there he us. is also sucking oh sorry sucking lollipops just before playing Kojak what and apparently he did that because he had quit smoking the actor yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's right and uh, but he really works it in as a hilarious bit of business in in, in a number of scenes uh, he does seem to be having an extraordinary amount of fun with uh, with the role uh, but but yeah I mean and I think the the that's interesting uh, what you're saying about the uh, the way House of Exorcism kind of imposes this A to B to C or at least explains away uh, like the stuff that, that that you can't connect to a to b to c it kind of it says oh well yes this won't connect so here's just some stuff yeah or it just cuts it all together yeah and and there of course we are seeing i mean you know, obviously the impact of the exorcist yes right which and i mean and there of course i mean a a, a horror film that went out of its way to well on the one hand, grounding itself in a in a, a kind of realism that had never been seen uh, before, really, as as at least in this particular approach to the supernatural, even though it has its own oneric qualities and and the aspects that are not fully explained, but nonetheless, no no one's going to be really as far as the main thrust of the narrative of the Exorcist is concerned. No one's going to be confused about how we got from A to B to C, and then. It would, of course, spawn no end of imitators in uh, in in Europe. The uh, I think it's Luigi Cozzi who once said that uh, um, in Italy, producers don't ask you what is your film like; they ask you what film is your film like. That is why we will always be making Zombie Two and Ever Zombie One. I mean, we and certainly that would we'd see that effect with all of the exorcism ripoffs and variations that would come out of, uh, of there, and so Alfredo Leone would turn. Lisa and the Devil into one of those Exorcist ripoffs, and with you know perhaps importing some of that attempt to impose a certain kind of sense, whereas the original film is not interested in that at all. Uh, but if the usual narrative threads are are missing, the thematic ones are right. As we see Lisa move from one labyrinth to another labyrinth, the the, the repetitions of of characters coming back over and over, dying and then resurfacing and, uh, and and coming back only to die again, then moving into the 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 orgy of violence that, uh, that that gradually consumes everyone as the murders all happen, only to then give us the sense that this is this has happened before and it's going to happen again. Right. Right. Lisa cannot escape this. She thinks she has, but she hasn't. Uh, it's just you know we're 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 into you know was it a, you know, another circle of hell uh, as we get at the end and even there the 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 reading I am imposing here is is one that is is certainly very much arguable. It's a film that is deliberately is leaving itself open to interpretation. You know, you, you, you can't nail down precisely what's going on in Lisa and the Devil any more than you can in 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
but it is of a piece. Yeah. Like visually the uh you know the, the, the extraordinary exteriors and then the the glamorousness of decay that we get in the interiors, the romanticism of uh Joaquin Rodrigo's Concerto de Aranthuet, which uh which plays during the you know, one one of the most explicitly necrophile uh, scenes in uh, in in Bava's career, something that that that's that it certainly rotates around, uh, revolves around uh, in 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 a number of his films. So all of this is is of a piece, right? It's uh, Lisa and the Devil has a unity and a coherence that the House of Exorcism just flat out doesn't, because we there's there's this other thing that's been that's being brought in and. Uh, a, a kind of procrustean bed of a narrative upon which the original film is being stretched and cut. Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, you were talking a, a moment ago here about the the visual presentation, right? The the location shots, and you're making mm-hmm. me think a lot about something that I really miss about like very style stylized films, especially from this period. Is there's just a lot of attention to the locations that are being that mm-hmm. a, a thing is being shot in about what's present on the screen. I mean, even in this film, there's this this really interesting sequence when they're all sitting awkwardly around this like me- mechanized little table with the little figures that spin, and one of them is clearly a figure of death. There's there's all of that present there. There's so much attention here to this sort of almost gothic style uh, mansion and it's it's various mm-hmm. interior shots you know dealing with all of the like there's a, there's a sense of like extravagance but old extravagance throughout and 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 there's even the sort of matriarchal figure and the figure of the mother here and even the external shots of you know them out with all of the the just these massive you know fountains and pillars and all of this stuff that feels like you've you've wandered back you know a hundred years or more and it's yeah. all throughout this and so even when you get to that end sequence when she quote unquote wakes up and she wakes up on the bed and it's the same room we've seen before but now it is covered in vines and and trees and all kinds of of wildlife and creatures you know you still get that that sense but now you're you're watching something that has you know, gone through this process of decay over an ex- absurd amount of time. I mean, I think it's interesting that you, you mentioned the car when it was anachronistic. You know, that is sort of like your first big clue that we're not, yeah. we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in, no. we're in some other place and it's very ominous, the, the whole presentation. And even the, the, the return of the devil figure uh, constantly coming back and, and reappearing in her, her life over and over that, sort of couples with the way that this whole visual presentation is there because he becomes sort of tied into the the sort of management of this space. Like he, he is literally the, the like butler of death as well as the butler of life in a, in a, a twisted way, but in the same space. So there's just a lot, I think, visually that you, you could just have a heyday with in terms of yeah. what we're shown. And I'm sure if uh, you've seen this more than I have, so I've only seen it uh, twice now, technically. And so it's a thing that I noticed a lot, just thinking about all of the, the visual presentations and the amount of detail that's in any given mm-hmm. scene, the amount of stuff, even like the moments when uh, the devil figure is like in his like giant room, this massive, massive room 
with all of the like uh, filigree and stuff all over the like mirrors and windows and all of that. And he's just in a room full of dummies and, and dummy heads just everywhere. And all of them are slightly different and some of them are bleeding and bloody. It's it's a lot of detail just just even even there. And there's lovely transitions, I will say, between when they're they're clearly dummies, but then they become very lifelike. And yeah. it's really creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy. <laughs> well, and Savalas' uh, devil, he's also, I, I think, I mean, everything you said about him there, I would agree with completely. Uh, and and as well as all of that, also, he, he's our master of ceremonies. Yes. Right? Which which is how he is presented in the opening credits, right? Sort of smiling at us and laying out the cards that the characters are, are, are going to be on, as a, also as, as a kind of magician. Uh, and we get that little, lovely little sleight of hand he does when he's... Um, He's caught smoking and by, by the matriarch, incidentally played by Alida Valley of the Third Man, and later of Suspiria and Inferno. Uh, and then he, he, he swaps the cigarette for the for the lollipop, and we see his master of ceremonies aspect kick in when uh, we get we suddenly get that impromptu funeral uh, procession after the first murder. Yeah, right. And notice how he he directs everyone to you know to stand in a certain way and then follow. Uh, like he's he's you know a a master of puppets. Which these these dummies are as well, and when Lisa, you know, suddenly collapses as a rotting corpse, she, the way she falls is as a puppet whose strings have suddenly been cut, right? It kind of sort of jerky descent. It, she, she she drops in stages, very much like a a, a a a broken puppet. So he we have his his presiding presence playfully and perversely and and in a macabre way. Uh, taking us through one strange incident after another, and to come back to what you're saying about time, right? Like you said, the the, the car is the first clue that uh, okay, things are are going slippery here. Emphasized by when the children run away from Lisa when she emerges from the uh, the mansion, and they say no one's lived there for hundreds of years. Right. So even that car now uh, becomes open to question, right? It it opens up all sorts of possibilities, right? Like how long has this been going on? When did all of these murders take place? I mean, Maximilian's clothes are considered, you know, he, he's dressed in a way that's quite a bit older than that of the people who picked Lisa up in the car, and they're dressed in a way that's older than 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 she. And yet, and she has the flashback memory. She's in uh, a much older period costume. So time has ceased to have any kind of meaning in uh in in this place yeah it's it's very much like a ghost story that you you hear a lot of of you know the same incidents happening but sucking in new life into into the the repetition right so like each of these people come from different times and so you could read this as literally one of them was the original ghost figure and it and has sucked them all in one at a time and that's what this place does is it sucks people in and they become part of its its nightmare and even that becomes difficult when clearly Lisa is, is not a new arrival, right? She may not remember, what she, she may not understand why she is there, and yet there's her body up uh, uh, rotting in the bedroom, and everyone there knows her. Right. Uh, and we have a, you know, we, we are told of a love triangle that, lent, that ended in murder. But even there, if we just say, okay, it's just that reenacting itself. Well, but no, because these people seem to be from different times it's sort of something you were saying a little, uh, much earlier, which is that th they're re repeating these things over and over, but there there's a difference each time. And so over time, as these new, whenever they've arrived, right, the the narrative that 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 they all repeat has has had to shift to include these new 
individuals as part of what ultimately is is a trap right it's a trap that they, they all just die it does it's just a matter of yeah. when they die in a, in a set of sequences that seems to matter they're it's almost in a, in a weird way they're repeating a ceremony of their own and that ceremony is literally the arrival into this space which then eventually as as the process of spending time there they eventually come to their deaths and their deaths are maybe predetermined because they're ghosts it's unclear that really like if we treat him as an actual devil figure who is doing puppet strings all he's doing is the same play he just is now adding new actors in the play yeah, or perhaps picture him uh, playing with a, a huge dollhouse, and he's dressing the dolls up differently each time. Yeah, we kind of see with all these, you know, he's just got very large dolls that uh, that, that he's playing with. You're not wrong, because it does feel at times like he is playing with just life-size dolls. I mean, he's just mm-hmm. carrying these, like, when the mother shows up, I thought this was very well shot, when she, she's she been killed uh, by yeah. her, her son, uh, stabbed in, in the, like, basically straight into the heart, very phallic, given what has happened immediately before that, I will note. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we got all the incest and necrophilia that we could hope for in uh, in this. Yes, precisely. And when she walks in, right, you know something's wrong immediately. I mean, A, she's supposedly dead, so that's obviously wrong. But the way that she moves is very stiff. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like she's actually walking. Her body doesn't move that way. Of course, that's precisely what we're shown because this devil figure basically has has scared the son to fall to his death out of the window. He's impaled on something of, on like a fence or something. And then yeah. he pops his head around and it's like, oh, like so sad, like that you died. Also catching the Elita Valley dummy as if it got away from him. Right. Yeah. Uh, and is about to fall over. And when then we do see then Maximilian again, when Lisa emerges from the bedroom and now he's just a, a, a an ivory white statue overgrown with vegetation right. in, the, in the same position that we saw him. In. Yeah, there's there's a lot of just really interesting ways that it's dealing with its its imageries of death. And I guess you could call them apparitions if you want to call them ghosts uh, and the, the strange way in which I think this film does imply like infinite variations of, of a possible mm-hmm. theme. We're not, we're shown one variation, but you could imagine that these could be told in, in markedly different ways, depending on the puppet master as it were. Yeah. Or, and, and what, uh, what, what seems to be tickling his fancy at that particular moment. And, and I, and I think that's interesting that you say what tickles his fancy because compared to everybody else in this film, he absolutely is playing this sort of like a trickster figure, very, He's very yes. playful. He's very vibrant, and uh, he 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 does make some little jokes. He's clearly uh, uncomfortable <laughs> in 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 his relationship to other other people. Like he makes them uncomfortable is what I mean. But there is yeah. a joy to the performance he's giving, which yes. is a horrifying yeah. idea, given that these are people who are going to die horrible deaths <laughs> in the process of this story, and yet he's he's almost like dancing on tiptoes and like just having a good time throughout yeah. this he's he's one of the cheeriest devils uh in in film and and so caught up in the humor of the situation and and i think what you say there about you know, the horrible deaths is worth emphasizing as well because i mean the along with the the the, the gorgeous lyricism of, of the the imagery the the deaths are really violent right yeah. they uh when when they come uh and they come they, they start quite late into the film 
they're they're really brutal, right? You know, people being beaten to death, uh, being run over repeatedly uh, with a car, uh, along with the stabbings. I mean, the the they don't die easily. No. And uh, I wanted to just uh, come back on the, another point that you raised when you're talking about the the locations and. This is something too that the, I think was one of the great joys of the the continental European horror film is that even the the films with um, with considerably uh, lower budgets than, than this and this wasn't a big budget film uh, either. I mean, they, none of them would have had the means of uh, like the major studios in in the states uh, if they when, they when they wanted to commit to these. But what they do have is the abundance of locations. Right? You want. Uh, uh, a, a good-looking ruined castle. Well, there's one right over there, right? <laughs> yeah. The uh, you know you you want a, 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 a strange, eerie uh, uh, st- streets. Here you go, right? The uh, Baba uses locations brilliantly in uh, here. The I mean the, that sense of that uh, in the early uh, scenes. I just love the way that Lisa, like her sense of being lost, is utterly convincing. Right, uh, um, and I'm reminded here of of Don't Look Now, uh, and the way that uh, Nicholas Rogue turns Venice into a maze, right? Where you know, the, 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 suddenly you get this claustrophobic sense of all the streets, of none of the streets leading to somewhere where you can get a vista, of uh, and 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 the landmark, and and get a sense of where you are. Instead, you're trapped by these these high walls with shuttered uh, windows, and uh, all twisting and turning and leading to uh, places that 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 aren't really places. And he uh, gets a similar kind of disorientation in his superb ghost uh, film, uh, Kill Baby Kill, where uh, there too the, the, the actual location becomes a fairy tale-like setting for the, uh, the story and, and where that, that sense of disorientation is so deliberate that we have a scene in uh, the haunted villa where the hero is chasing after a figure as he goes after this person, we see him, we start to realize he's running through the same room over and over again. And as he gets closer and closer to the figure he's catching, when he finally catches up that, to that figure, it's himself. So our, our sense of space is, is completely uh, blown apart there. And, there's, and he does much, some similar kinds of things here, but even more, even more so with time. I think it's interesting. You're, you're, one of the things that you made me think of here is, uh, you know, if you watch this film for the first time, and if what you're expecting is, is well, I didn't expect this, but normally what I would expect would be, you know, a narrative that has an obvious through line. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to find yourself really confused by, like, everybody in this is deeply uncomfortable in this mansion, right? The, the space itself is, it feels antiquated. It feels like it's harboring something ill will. Even the mother figure who comes, she comes across as very cold and distant and honestly somewhat mad. Right, the son is overly uh, interested in everybody else to the point mm-hmm. that he seems, I would argue, creepy because of his his excessive interest. Um, he wants everybody to. They're so lonely. They everybody needs to come. He's so lonely, and so there's this sense throughout this film that you know these these characters are in this moment where they in a space where you keep wondering why don't they just leave because clearly mm-hmm. nobody's having a good time here. Why don't they just get in the car? Or go, or or look, we're we're uncomfortable. We appreciate all of the effort, but like we're just going to go to one of those roadside inns that is mentioned early on because their car breaks down, which is how they they end up here. Right, and we've already seen from the opening scene, you know, with uh, uh, with Lisa getting lost, that no, you can't leave. 
wherever it is you are, you're not going to leave until the devil uh, uh, lets you go to the next place that you can't leave. Right. And I think that's really important is, you know, you may not pick this up until you get, I honestly, I didn't get it till the very end because the second she gets on that airplane, you have one of two options there. You're like, Oh, okay. She's going to get away and everything's going to be fine. She had a horrible experience. She's going to be traumatized, but she's going to live. That's one possibility that happens, but she's looking around and she's like, Oh, this is like, she's having these looks and it, they don't show it, which is very clever. Baba, yeah shoots this brilliantly which is has her kind of look around like a little awkwardly you know just like oh like oh i'm just kind of looking and things don't look quite right and then eventually we get this shot slowly comes out as she begins to move around when we realize this massive massive two-tier airplane has nobody on it and that's the moment when you realize oh no the options we thought we had don't exist she is trapped in a circle uh and a a loop yeah she's trapped in a loop yeah and I think that's the moment when you start to realize, like, why doesn't everybody just leave? They're so uncomfortable. Well, it's because they can't. They literally cannot no. leave. This house has has sucked them in. This devil figure has sucked them in. And they are pawns in a game they have no control over. Uh, it made me think a lot of um, a science fiction take on this, which is uh, I, have, I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream by uh, Harlan Ellison. Right in which an evil artificial intelligence that's invented by man has taken over the world and is keeping this small group of humans alive solely so it can torture them and play with them. They can't kill themselves because it'll revive them. If they mouth off to it, it takes their mouth away. If it does anything, if they do anything to try to get out of this cycle, it ultimately does things to them. And so they're at the mercy of this entity. It's similar to this, just this is much more surreal in its portrayal, uh, where they just simply can't leave. It's it's not a possibility. Yeah. And I think that because Lisa's our center point and how we experience most of this, with some exceptions to some some sequences with Maximilian, this lends an air of claustrophobia for a space that's actually quite large. I mean, yeah. this mansion's not tiny. It's not a small mansion. <laughs> like it's it's massive. <laughs> But I think you're completely right because we that that uh, that opening scene in the the village feels to me intensely claustrophobic. You keep hoping you're going to be able to see over the walls, and you never can. No, right? You can't. You, you never return to that wide open square where the tourist bus was, right? Uh, and I, so I think you're right that it is, it is claustrophobic. The the intensity of what the characters are going through, the the, the sense of being trapped by something, and. And I would also add, too, that this is, um, when, when you're talking about sort of expectations, and, uh, and I think what you said is true, but also the more horror films fr- uh, from, well, from Italy in particular, well, no, you know, from Italy and Spain, I would say in particular, uh, that you see the more this kind of thing starts to feel, I don't know if expected is quite the right word, but familiar. So the, for instance, we go back uh, to the, uh, the 60s and Castle of Blood, where a um, uh, our, our protagonist makes a bet with Edgar Allan Poe uh, that he uh, will will be able to survive the night in this house, and uh, and then he you know, he's trapped by ghosts reliving the murders that uh, that that brought them there, and he's he's then trapped pulled into that and killed himself. So you can see a lot of the the same idea as as Lisa and the Devil, the the dreamlike qualities of you know what's going on, who's alive, who's dead, who are they now? There's a, an obscurity that was only seen, I think, by a few hundred people upon its uh, its initial release and uh, until it came out on DVD, Nude for Satan, which 
follows you know, the same kind of dreamlike logic that we get in, in Lisa and the Devil. Uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead, which was a big hit uh, coming out of, of Spain with the, um, the, the wonderful Templar zombies. Zombies that get to ride horses and use swords seem a little bit like cheating, but the uh, it, it too has that this sort of bizarre logic. Like you know, suddenly you've got reanimated corpses. Why? Just because. Just because. <laughs> this this dreamlike tradition, um, which we would see also in some of Dario Argento's films, the the, the non giallos like Suspiria and Inferno. It's everywhere in in the the horror film tradition there, uh, and we encounter we like I said I think we, we see this in a lot of, of of Japanese horror films too. And I remember uh, seeing a comment about one of the differences between the Japanese horror film tradition and the American horror film tradition, and uh, this commentator saying that uh, American audiences want the films to make sense, the Japanese audiences don't care as long as it's scary. Oh well, that would go back to when we did House, <laughs> although that right. one is much yeah. more of a comedic horror in that respect Comedic, yeah but it's got this but i mean really um house and lisa and the devil have a lot in common don't they yeah in the sort of okay now this is happening why because right i mean there's an interesting aspect of that which which is and i wonder if there's been some full like studies on on like a cultural analysis of why it is that you know at least in the united states i can't speak to basically any other western country but i imagine it's pretty similar in a lot of them which is that you know, in large respect, what we want is we want narratives with with beginning, middles, and ends, and you know some variation there, and it can, there can be some ambiguity, but we want some things that are fixed. And yet, there are other traditions of narrative in which there there's something about not wanting the fixedness of having no control. And, and this is a film that I think is interesting. Like the characters, as audience members, we have we have no control, right? There's 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 not a logic we can impose upon it. As it's as it progresses from each each new sequence, right? We can try to make sense of them by trying to invent narrative that fills the gaps, but mm-hmm. the film doesn't provide that. And I think no. what we're talking, what you're kind of talking about, is there are a lot of film traditions where that's kind of the case. And for horror, I it doesn't always work for me. I I, I think it would be fair to say that I, I lean much more towards wanting there to be narratives, to be to be somewhat of a middle, uh, beginning, middle of an end of some kind. But in horror, I think what can be interesting about that is because it takes away that control from the viewer, that can be somewhat more terrifying because the unknown is honestly one of the most terrifying things that we can imagine right the thing that we have no control over the thing that we don't understand the thing that doesn't follow a logic and if we're talking about ghosts or haunted spaces or devils right those are things that like we can't impose any reason upon it we can't make sense of it and so it's beyond our control we're basically at its mercy and this film does that pretty pretty clearly i think to to make that uh, clear which is why i think my I've said before, my favorite sequence is still the end of this film on the airplane, because that's when, you know, all of your hopes are dashed against the wall. (laughs) You realize, oh, no, this poor character has gone through these horrible ordeals and will not escape it. You know, in other films, if characters don't escape it, it's because they just died and that that's it for them. Death is the end point there. There isn't necessarily an afterwards. So like something like it, it went into the, the new versions, right? They have a clear beginning, middle and end. Each of those films, there's an end point. And if characters don't make it to the end, it's because they've died, and that that that's the cutoff. You just you just stop. But this film doesn't have that. Not that they were they were already doomed, damned, and dead before the movie even began. Right. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. That in a lot of ways, the 
the characters or really explicitly the characters in this they're already doomed before we even meet them right the second they show up on screen if you rewatch this you know they're already doomed and there's that that sense of doom that we get in you know, if we look at again, sort of like the history of the horror film, right? And certainly the you know the the, the dreamlike quality again. You know, where does the horror film begin? It begins in France in 1896. You know, a lot of Georges Méliès' films that you know, you know, they're very cheery in their portrayal of, of demons and skeletons and things like that. But if you look at one of his uh, films, I think it's uh, very early in the 1900s, The Monster, where which it is quite nightmarish. The uh, in, in the, the, this portrayal of a man wanting his um, uh, his his wife back, and it just uh, this is from 1903. Uh, we, we we just get this bizarre, literally dance macabre, uh, and the the body of his wife turning into this kind of jabberwock uh, figure, uh, and then finally a skeleton at the end. There's no real logic to it. It's just a an unnerving uh, set of images. And the first, if we, you know, where we finally get the, the feature-length uh, horror film with uh, the, the student of Prague in 1913, the, a, a man ultimately sells his soul to the devil uh, and then is confronted by his own evil double uh, that, that he finally kills, but therefore, in doing so, kills himself. The, the character's doomed from, from the get-go. But in, in it, and then the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I mean, there, if we want to look at you know, the, the most famous you know, first real horror movie, and the audience plunged into a a world that is completely unnatural, right? You know, good luck finding a right angle in that movie. And though the, a a somewhat rationalist frame was tacked on prior to uh, to production, the what lingers is this, the the dreamlike or nightmare like quality of the the film and and its narrative. The, the the nightmare world of, of the horror film you know was was there from the start and in in some ways despite the the dominance it would then then develop the the American branch of horror film storytelling is kind of is an offshoot right it comes later right and uh, then then the you know inevitably would would come to dominate but then but we do have that period well we're still it's still happening in the in the 1970s but from the 60s to the the eighties where we have a proper flowering of the the European horror film uh, in in all its different forms and where and, until the you know, it, it, it you know it, it, it largely collapses in the uh, in in the late eighties but we have that existence of this this thread this 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 tradition of horror movies that is very different even when we we see it in dialogue with the American counterpoint. And for so long, it was hard for us to see these movies, at least as I was growing up. They would be essentially movies you would read about. Yeah. Uh, maybe. You wouldn't get to see. Uh, they might show up in very, very adulterated forms. And then in the in the 90s, it starts to become possible more, or more and more in the, the home video age to actually see these films. But even prior before that, I remember one of my, one of my first experiences of a recent uh, European horror film was you know seeing some of Argento's films like um, Phenomena and its American form Creepers and uh, Inferno, and the experience of of what you were talking about, the loss of control of of utter terror because there was no way of predicting what was going to happen from one scene to the next. Right, the the usual rules of okay. 
here's the main character, here's how they're going to deal with a thing, suddenly went out the window. I had no way of knowing if this person was still going, I thought maybe was the main character, was going to be alive or dead uh, two minutes later. Uh, just this, this avalanche of terrifying, strange images, it did feel like experiencing a true nightmare being projected onto the big screen. And I think that's one of the joys that, that Lisa and the Devil uh, can bring to the viewer. Yeah, I think I think a lot of that is is things that we normally get to go into a lot more, if not for the fact that we've already recorded nearly an hour at this point. <laughs> yeah, so we should probably wrap it up. Yeah, I th- I I want I want to say uh, just a couple of things as a as a last thing, which is that uh, if you're interested in Italian horror cinema, uh, Roberto Curti has a couple of books that are on the decades of the 1960s and then the 1970s on the Italian Gothic horror film. This film is talked about, uh, specifically uh, the version uh, that he talks a little bit about, uh, The House of Exorcisms, essentially copying of the ex- of the Exorcist, which you mentioned earlier, David. So those might be things that people are interested in if you're interested in getting into more of this stuff. I just want to add another recommendation to what you just said there in the same vein, and that's Jonathan Rigby's magisterial trilogy of American Gothic, English Gothic, and Euro Gothic, which are comprehensive histories of those traditions in those three uh, in those three industries, uh, covering just about every film or certainly every significant one made uh, d- during the, those periods. And so they, I think they're still in print. They're a little bit more, they're, they're a little on the pricey side, but well worth it if you can track them down. Yeah. And then again, see if your library can get you access to it. So exactly. You... But all right, David, it's time for me to tell you what, what movie we're we going to do next. Time? Yeah. Uh, you're going to be surprised because it's going to also be weird. Okay. <laughs> we are going to be doing Sun Ra's Space is the Place. Oh, that's a new one on me, so I'm looking forward to that. Yep, that's what we're doing. All right, so thanks, folks. That's it for today. If you'd like to let us know what you thought about this episode, head on over to skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. Also follow us at Skiffy and Fanty on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to our newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. Finally, if you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty, and give us some love by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. And you can find me at underscore, uh, sorry, at David underscore Annandale on Twitter and DavidAnandale.com, my sadly neglected website. And you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, SeanDuke.net or Patreon.com slash The Joy Factory. Where he does lots of great stuff. Oh, thank you. I, I try. Uh, all right, folks, that's it. That's all she wrote. So uh, I need to make it awkward now because that's what I normally do on the podcast. Honestly, that's really hard to do with this film because all the things that are uncomfortable about this film are things that I really don't feel comfortable saying. Uh, so <laughs> I will just note that uh, if I ever die, David, I would like you to have me interned as a saint inside of a gothic Italian castle. Okay, cool. And uh, I'm going to uh, listen to some Rodrigo now and suck a lollipop. <laughs> and on that note, awkward ending and see If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. 
Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>